0: And now, O Father, we come once again to the third chapter of the Gospel of John, and we are humbled by what we read and what we study and what we see. As Isaiah was humbled as he stood before the throne of God and saw you high and lifted up, and hearing the cherubim declare, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, We, like Isaiah, know not what to do when we come to these things, but to fall down before you, as Peter did, and to say, depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man and incapable of fully understanding the depth, of the riches, the wisdom, and the knowledge of God. But, oh, Father, we we long to know. We long to know more. We want to see your glory. And we want to be humbled in the dust before you because that's where life is. That's where joy is. Because that's where you are. Show us yourself this morning. As Moses said, Lord, show me your glory. And be glorified in our response, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. John chapter 3, once again this morning, and as we prepare for the Lord's Supper, I want to continue kind of working through this narrative in John 3 that we've been studying together for the last few weeks, and you remember that we're at that part in the narrative where a Pharisee by the name of Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night to have kind of a secret conversation with Jesus because uh, he doesn't want the other Pharisees to know that he's cohorting with Jesus. They already don't like him. Jesus' ministry has just begun. He's cleared the temple, and that's why they're, they're kind of mad at him. But he's also doing miracles that John isn't recording for us. He assumes, we've already read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and know what miracles he did in the temple and in, and in Jerusalem that first week of ministry. But Nicodemus has seen, and he's heard, and he's been very, very impressed with this man, and though his compadres in ministry, as it were, in the Sanhedrin don't like Jesus, and they suspect he's a false messiah, Nicodemus is unconvinced. He believes, as he told us at the beginning of this section in verse 4, that he believes that Jesus is from God and that God is with him. And how does he know that? Because of the miracles that he knows Jesus has done. Nevertheless, he is skeptical or not skeptical but ignorant about the way of salvation. He, being an expert in the prevailing system of works righteousness, was under the illusion that God saves sinners on the merits of their works. Now put yourself in the position of Nicodemus. This was his way to God, and he's been walking that path his whole life. And Jesus is saying some really radical and, as we'll see in the next couple of weeks, condemning things to him. This is, this is full-on confrontation with Jesus. And he's doing it because he's gracious, doesn't want Nicodemus to go to hell. And so he confronts him where he needs to be confronted. But Nicodemus had always believed that God saves sinners on the merits of their works, whether they had obeyed the law enough, whether they had honored the Sabbath enough, or or kept the feast, or offered the appropriate sacrifices on time and in the right ways, It was absolutely unfathomable to him that God might actually save people, not on the basis of what they've done, but simply by the impulse of his own sovereign grace. Jesus was attempting to explain that to him. Now, here's here's another part of the context that you need to understand here. Jesus, 30 years old, seminary grad. He didn't go to seminary, self-taught. In fact, he wrote the books that everybody else was studying um, before he was born. <laughs> that's not fair. I mean, that's just, that's just not fair. But here he is. He's, he's 30 years old. Nicodemus has been a rabbi. We get the impression that he's, that he's old. He's an older man because he says, um, Nicodemus says, how can these things, oh, no, no, no. In verse 4, how can a man be born when he is old? And so maybe Nicodemus is referring to himself. He's an old man. He has been doing this forever. He has been a rabbi in Israel for decades more than likely. And he doesn't know the way of salvation. And here's this young upstart rabbi who's getting in his face and telling him, haven't you read the Bible? (laughs) Are you kidding? And so Jesus starts This is what Jesus has taught him so far, just by way of review, chapter 3, verse 3. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. That's our first clue that the reason Nicodemus came is because he has questions about redemption. How are sinners justified in the eyes of God? First thing Jesus says is "Nobody, nobody, nobody gets to see the kingdom of heaven unless they're born again. Next, after Nicodemus expresses some confusion over this, Jesus explains, verse 5, unless one is, okay, he's saying the same thing here, different words, born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And then Jesus gave him three uh, clarifying proofs to demonstrate that what he was saying was true. Unless he is born of water and the Spirit, remember last week we said that's not about water baptism, it's not about natural birth, Jesus is pointing to probably this passage in Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 through 27. We went there last week, so we won't go there again today. But this is where a new covenant promise is given by the prophet Ezekiel in Babylon to the captives there who God was about to free to bring them back to Israel, and he's encouraging them. He's saying, understand, you will not always be under God's judgment, and you will not always be incapable of, of... observing the law of God. Understand that the law could not save. The law, the old covenant, was not designed to be the means of salvation to anyone. Paul makes it clear in Romans 7, doesn't he? That the purpose of the law was to expose sin so that we would cry out like the publican, God be merciful to me, the sinner. That was the purpose of the law. Nobody got saved by keeping the law. And in fact... They were incapable of keeping the law. And that's how they ended up in Babylon. Because their hearts went astray, 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 and just wandered and wandered and wandered. And so the prophet Ezekiel comes and he he tells them, he gives them this promise. And he says this, someday God's going to do a new thing. And what he's going to do is he's going to send his spirit to you. And he's going to wash your heart clean with water. Hence, water and spirit. And send the Holy Spirit to remove from you the heart of stone, that wicked, rebellious thing that has no intention to ever please God or obey him, and replace it with a living heart that loves God, loves his law, loves to obey him and, and hates his sin. That'll be the work of the Spirit. Water and spirit. And it's as if Jesus is saying, in fact, he says it explicitly here later, really? You don't under, this is the Bible. What I'm teaching you, you should already know. You are a teacher of the law. Don't you know Ezekiel 36? So that was evidence number one. Evidence number two um, was proof from nature or from the logic as revealed in nature, and that's in verse 6, the simple fact that the only thing that flesh, human flesh, human beings, the only thing you can, we can procreate is flesh, and sinful flesh at that. Even if you and your wife both are genuinely born again, the only thing you can produce physically is sinful children. And all God's people said, <laughs> yeah, okay, we won't go there, but... Um, Nicodemus was saying, so I don't understand. Go back into my mother's womb, be born all over. Jesus is saying, that wouldn't help. It just wouldn't help. Because when you're born the first time, you're born sinful. You're going to be born the second time, you'll be born sinful. Flesh can only produce flesh. But the spirit begets spirit. So whatever it is that you need, whatever this born again thing is, the spirit has to do it. It's just like when you were born the first time and, and you didn't have any part in that. First thing you know, somebody was spanking you. <laughs> and that's the way it is with salvation. Not the spanking part. But the fact that, that it was a passive thing, you didn't have any contribution to it. You just were there. Suddenly you were there. You were alive. You came to life. And That's what he's saying. And then third thing. Again, we're talking about how, does, how do sinners... Come to, to salvation. Got to be born again. What does that mean? How does that happen? And he gives this illustration in verse 8. Jesus says, listen, the wind blows wherever it wishes you hear the sound of it and you do not know where it comes from or where it is going, so is everyone who is born. That word, that's how we know. He's saying consistently, speaking about the same thing he started with, being born again, being born of water and spirit. You can't be born of flesh. That doesn't do it. So is everyone who is born of the spirit. What's that mean? It means the Holy Spirit is in charge of this, not man. It is so critical Listen, we talked about assurance of salvation for two weeks. I've been kind of building. How do Christians not have assurance? And and usually the the reason they don't have assurance is because they don't understand how salvation works, how redemption works, how reconciliation with God, justification, how all of that happens. And what Jesus is saying is, here's the first building block. The first thing that has to happen is God has to act, not man. Something happens to him not by him. And the first thing that happens is God causes him to be born again. He gives him life. And how does that life come? It comes by the Spirit. Do we, do we control that? No. It's like the wind. Try controlling that that's Jesus' point. Try controlling the wind. You think, Nicodemus, that you can control this whole thing by getting people to get circumcised and then baptized and then keep this law, keep that law, keep this law, keep that law. Eventually, you'll be saved. How about that? That's not going to work for you. Then what's it like, Jesus, tell me, what is it really like? It's like the wind, Nicodemus. Try controlling that. Human beings don't have, they're not in the driver's seat here. God is. God is. If any man comes to Christ, it is because God acted first. John says, we love God because he first, what? Loved us. Who initiated God? And this is what Jesus is teaching Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is clueless. Bad theology. Verse 9. In case there was any doubt, Nicodemus is clueless on this. He says to him, how can these things be? I mean, the only only things Nicodemus has said so far was a polite, complimentary introduction, a question about clarification, and then verse verse 9 says, Jesus, I'm having a hard time even believing what you're saying or understanding it. And from here on, for Jesus, it goes from dialogue to, um, to monologue. Nicodemus never speaks again. I'm not sure he speaks ever again in the New Testament. But now Jesus is full on, full court press. He's going to be explaining this. And this is what, what he says. Look at, look at verse, um, I don't know where I am in my notes. If you're taking notes, number one, let's talk about ignorant unbelief. That's Nicodemus. Ignorant unbelief. And we pick this up here in, um, in verse 10. Jesus answers and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? And what's he saying? Once again, this is why I say whatever Jesus is saying, he's drawing it out of the Old Testament. We know that because there was no New Testament, right? Right? He's drawing this out of the Old Testament. Nicodemus, have you read your Bible? Have you read the Old Testament? Have you read the New Covenant teachings in the Old Testament? You already saw last week we saw the Ezekiel 36. Turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 31. If you're looking for Jeremiah, go to Psalms and turn right a couple of books, and you'll find a few books. Jeremiah chapter 31. And beginning with verse 31, this is easy to remember, if you can just remember the book Jeremiah, then it's 31, 31, 31, 31, got it? Everybody say it, Jeremiah, 31, 31, new covenant, Old Testament passage, this is, this is, this is the old covenant promising a new covenant. Okay, here we are, verse 31, behold, this is God speaking through Jeremiah, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Isn't that interesting? It's not going to be like that covenant. You know why? A covenant couldn't save anybody. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with them, with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord. Here's what it is. I will put my law within them. And on their hearts I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people and they will not teach each other, every man his neighbor, and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. It's the promise of the new covenant. Now, Let me just fast forward a little bit to when I step down on the, on the floor here and serve the Lord's table Remember what Jesus says as he's getting ready to pass the cup? This is the new covenant in my blood. Isn't that great? Is there any doubt in what he's saying? Is there any doubt why he came? He came to establish the new covenant, but he had to pay the price. So here we are. Jesus is saying, are you the teacher of Israel, the teacher in Israel, and you do not understand these things? Notice the definite article there. The teacher of Israel? I mean, Jesus is shocked. I mean, the definite article here before teacher shows that Nicodemus was not just some backwoods preacher that nobody knew. I mean, everybody knew him. He'd been around for a long time. You remember, he even had kind of the moral authority when when the high priest was condemning Jesus, it was Nicodemus who kind of got after him and said, listen, our law doesn't allow for anyone to be condemned without a trial. There needs to be witnesses. I mean, only a man with some gravitas could do that. And that was Nicodemus. He was well known. He was respected by the nation of Israel. Nevertheless, he obviously was ignorant. And the spiritual realities that Jesus, this young 30-year-old rabbi, was explaining fluidly and so easily. So why is it that Nicodemus and the rest of the Sanhedrin could not understand the truths that Jesus was teaching? It was because they chose not to believe what God had plainly revealed. Look at verses 11 and 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, We speak what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Uh, Jesus is so far in front of Nicodemus, Nicodemus can barely see him. In terms of his intellect and his capacity to, to enter into this conversation, he has so much more information than Nicodemus does. Again, it's a little unfair because he's God. He had, I mean, he is the source. But that's the whole point. That's the whole point of the gospel, right? John says, I I wrote to you these things so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. And that believing you may have life in his name. And so here Jesus is telling Nicodemus, Here's what, here's what Jesus is doing. He's telling Nicodemus, he's revealing to Nicodemus his own authority. How, here's the question. By what authority are you telling me these, these things that nobody else is teaching? Um, and here's Jesus basically, here's Jesus' answer. Um, I've lived in heaven forever at the right hand of the Father. I came down from heaven as God. How's that for authority? That's basically what he's saying. I have the authority to tell you these things because I've been there. I I not only have been there, but really, for the rest of eternity, I'm going to think of earth and say, I've been there. I visited there once. But for the rest of eternity, I was with the Father, believe me. I know of what I speak. And beloved, just let that sink in. I mean, if we were to stop right here, we we should just all just get down low. He is God. He is God. He is God. That's what John wants us to say. That's what we should say. This is exactly what John said of Jesus back in chapter 1, right, when he wrote these words in verse 14, John 1:14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw his glory. Glory as of the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. This is who Jesus is. He is God. But even though Nicodemus said he believed that Jesus came from God and that God was with him, still he just could not get himself to believe that Jesus is word in flesh, God in flesh. And because of that, he was trapped in ignorant, damnable unbelief. Nevertheless, Jesus had come to seek and save those like Nicodemus. And we have reason to hope that eventually that's what happened, that Nicodemus truly was regenerated, redeemed. In verses 14 and 15, Jesus calls Nicodemus and all people to turn now from their unbelief to saving belief, or what I'm calling, number two, regenerate belief. Regenerate belief because regeneration happens first, now, I'm thinking maybe what I need to do, just to kind of step back from this for a second. What I've been doing is just unpacking the text. And some of you who are theologically minded are thinking to yourself, okay, I think, I, I think I'm clear on his systematic theology here. But why is not he giving us the whole thing? The reason I'm not giving you the whole thing is because I'm trying to do justice to the text. And I'm thinking what I might do in the near future is just do a message to kind of bring all of this together and to help us to see it as a as kind of a, a systematic approach, if that would be helpful. But what I'm doing now is I'm just trying to explain the text and help us understand it the way Jesus was putting it out there. we got to really look at Paul. That's why I read the scriptures I did a little while ago in my prayer. you got to look at Paul to kind of unpack it and to explain the details of it But all I'm doing here is explaining the text. So here we go. Here's what Jesus says next. Verses 14 and 15. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man will be lifted up. So that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. Now, this seems like a, a radical change once again. Again, Jesus is so far ahead of Nicodemus and us that it's really kind of hard to track. His logic here is thinking. But when you, when you think about what he's saying, it's, it's incredibly profound. He chooses a story from the Old Testament that we all know, and every Jew would have known. Nicodemus would have known this story inside and out. He would have known more about this story probably than what is revealed here in the text because he was a Jew living before the cross. But if you were to turn to Numbers 21, and you can do that if you wish, Numbers 21, we may have time for this. I'm going to take time. Numbers 21, 5 through 9. And if you can turn there quickly, you can read the story with me. Otherwise, just listen. Numbers 21, 5 through 9. Here's the story. So the people spoke against Moses and God, God and Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in this wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food. Okay, so just an aside here. Uh, What was the big sin here? They were complaining about the food. So children, listen up. You're about to go home. to Sunday dinner, there might be something on your plate that you don't like, Uh, just remember the rest of the story about the serpents and judgment, and, and that might help you with your attitude about the grilled cheese or the asparagus or whatever you're about to eat. Here's the point. In the Old Testament, God was really, really serious about complaining about what he has provided. What was the food they were eating? Manna. I mean, it was made in God's kitchen. And they're complaining about it. And so, verse 6, the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And so the people came to Moses, and they said, We have sinned because we have spoken against the Lord and you. Intercede with the Lord that we may that he may remove the serpents from us. And so Moses interceded for the people. And then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard. Standard is kind of a pole. And it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he will live. Now this is interesting. In, um, it's actually just occurred to me just now. In Egypt, when, when God sent the plagues, and Moses said, uh, Intercede for me. And so, what did God do? He took the plague away. He took the frogs away. He took the gnats away. He took the hail away. He took the whatever it was, the, the, the blood in the river away. He took it all away. Not here. Not taking the serpents away. I'm going to give you the cure. Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on the standard, and it came about that if a person, um, I'm sorry, if the serpent bit a man and he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. Okay, so we got the context here? Jesus, explain to me how redemption happens. Jesus is saying these things. You've got to be born again. You've got to be born of water and the Spirit. It's not something you can do. It's something that the Spirit does, and the Spirit does it like the wind. You can't control it. It's something that God has to do for you. You're kind of passive in this, and it, and it happens to you. It not, it, it's not something that happens by you. Don't you understand this, Nicodemus? Haven't you read the Word of God? Haven't you seen Ezekiel? Haven't you seen Jeremiah? Don't you understand these things? If I'm going to tell you heavenly things, and oh, how I would love to give you more revelation but you were unable to receive it because you can't even understand what the Bible has already said and so this is how it's going to happen. It happens like Moses. Remember Moses. Remember the story. Let's go back to Sunday school Nicodemus and let's remember the fundamental stories of life in the wilderness. Remember that time they rebelled against God and God sent his judgment upon them and the people began dying all over the place. And then he sent the cure. He sent the cure. The point of the story, the illustration shows two things. Number one, Israel's hopeless condition because of their sin. And number two, God's gracious provision for a cure. Why did God send the serpents? To judge them. It was sin. And Paul will explain, the wages of sin is death. On the other hand, God is gracious. He's not just a God of wrath. He loves his people. And even though we deserve death, he is gracious and eager to save us from from his own wrath. Let's just take another parenthesis and insert it here for a second. When God saves a man, he saves him from what? Sin? In one sense. Satan? Satan? I really, maybe in some sense. But what does he save us from? Listen, God saves us from God. God saves us from his own wrath. I know if you remember this, it's always burned in Chris and I's mind because uh, one of our children was involved. Josh, first year at college, the tornado comes through, destroys Union University. He was there, he went right through his door, destroyed everything. And uh, word got out that there was a pastor in town who had a son uh, at Union, and I was on my way to Union, we picked up Joshua we coming home, and the media started calling me. And, uh, and they said, what's it like down there, can you tell us firsthand account? you know, you got your son, can we meet with you when you get back, and all this stuff, what was it like? And I said, here's what I told him, I said, it was absolutely incredible. It was such a picture of the gospel. We have the grace of God. I, t- I told them, in all of the devastation, not one person died. And the first responders were shocked. They'd already let out the body bags. They let out the body bags because they were estimating how many people would have died. And I said, it was just such a glorious picture of the gospel. It was like the grace of God rescuing his people from the wrath of God. You think that made it on the air? <laughs> Cut. That's what salvation is. The gospel is all about the grace of God rescuing his people from the wrath of God. And this is the story of the serpents. The people in the desert cried, we have sinned. And beloved, this is the cry of every regenerate heart. When God does, when that Holy Spirit moves like the wind, in your heart, you see yourself clearly. Now, I'm not saying Old Testament Israel uh, in this account was regenerated as a nation. That's not what I'm saying at all. What I am saying, Jesus is using this as a picture. Jesus is using this as a picture. This is the way it happens. It's not, it, it's not something that happens as a result of keeping the law. You don't escape the penalty for your sins like being bit by a snake by, by attending Sabbath services or doing works of righteousness or, or penance or saying a hundred Hail Marys. The prescription was like this. Look and live. Look and live. It's like that. It's not like a, applying medicine to yourself. It's not like giving yourself an injection. It's not like working out to get your, your body more healthy. It's not like that. It's look to something outside of yourself for salvation. It's the only way you're going to get it. It will come to you from outside yourself. And so the analogy is obvious, isn't it? One day, Jesus would be lifted up, not on a pole, but on a cross. And he would be lifted up for the same reason the serpent was lifted up. Sinners are all under God's judgment. If God doesn't do something to save us, we are all lost And so, in the mystery of his unfathomable grace, God sent his son and lifted him up for the world to see so that all who would look to him in childlike faith would not only be rescued from the just wrath of God, but have eternal life. Eternal life. And here's what I'm suggesting. I'm about to explain it, but let me say it first. When it comes to looking to Jesus, if you do, you already have eternal life. Only a regenerate heart will submit itself to the Lord of lords and the King of kings. And let me show that to you here. Notice in your text, it no doubt says something like, will in him have eternal life, or the ESV says, may have eternal life. Um, My understanding of the Greek here um, is a a little more narrow, because what I see in the Greek is this, the word to have, will have, clearly all the translators understand the word is have, so but we, we've got to take our understanding of what Jesus has said or, or you're going to take your systematic theology and make some interpretation about what to do with this word because it says have, but it's not future. It's present has. And so here's, here's what it says. Um, so whoever believes in him has eternal life. Um, the fact that a person that a sinner ever would believe indicates that he has already been born again. Born from above. Or regenerated by the uncontrollable spirit of a sovereign God. Do you know what faith is? Do you know what belief is? Do you know where it comes from? First, you are born. And then, you know, think of a baby being born, coming out of its mother's womb, and and as it has been explained to me, we've had a lot of children, so I've had it explained to me a lot of times, that the baby's lungs are compressed on the way out. And when he's born, the first thing that should happen is, and then he cries, right? And if he doesn't, he gets spanked, and then he cries, but he's going to cry. First thing, he's going to cry. And the illustration, Jesus' birth, All that, it all fits. Here's what happens. You're given life. And as soon as that life comes in you, you are born. And the first thing you say is, I believe. I believe. I believe. I believe. I believe Jesus. I believe you. I don't know why I believe you, but right now I believe you. And you know what that's like? So many of you have the same testimony I had. You heard the gospel 10,000 times. Growing up in church, and not all of you grew up in church, so this isn't your testimony. But so many of us, it's the way it was. And yours is probably like this. You probably heard the gospel, too. But you hear it, and you hear it, and you hear it, and it's like water off a dust bag. Who cares? I remember what it's like to be an unregenerate sinner. I know what it's like to hate the gospel and, and despise the commandments. I, I, I know what it's like. I remember being a heathen. I remember being a really bad kid. And then one day... I can't explain it. One day, I remember, I, I think I remember where it was. Word of Life Bible Institute, first week, I heard Jack Wirtzen preach. Jack Wirtzen, I just butchered his name. Jack Wirtzen, he preached there at the lake. And it was a lot of kumbaya stuff, yes. But you know what? On that day, it's like, wow, the gospel. I've never heard the gospel this is glorious. This is wonderful. God, I believe. And if you were to ask me why then, I don't know. The wind blows wherever it wishes. And so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. We never know why in the providence of God it's one day and not another, one message and not another, one circumstance and not another. The question we left with last week is, where does faith fit into the salvation equation? It fits right here. Faith is the first breath of the soul that has been born again. Faith doesn't cause regeneration. It is the fruit of regeneration. That's why Paul says in that all-familiar passage, Ephesians 2, 8, For by grace you have been saved. How, How have you been saved? By grace you have been saved. Say it with me. By grace you have been saved. Watch this. Through faith. Now stop and that not of yourselves that what that faith it is the gift of god not of works lest anyone should what boast that that, that phrase at the end that's not a throwaway phrase All of this is designed so that God will get all of the glory. Nobody's going to stand in heaven and say, I am so glad I figured this out in time. Aren't I smart? And look at those people over there. They were dumb. They couldn't figure it out. But I figured it out. I mean, just barely, Throw a little humility in there, just barely figured it out, just in time, but I figured it out. No, no. All of us are going to, when we get to heaven, we're going to stand before God and say, God, why did you save me? Why did you save, my, save me? I was in the Niagara River getting ready to, 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 to go over the falls. You didn't push me. I jumped in by my own volition. I'm a sinner by choice, and I deserved the wrath. Why did you save me? And John will say, if you love him, it's because he first loved you. Oh, beloved, this... This is glorious. This is why the author of Hebrews calls it so great a salvation. We can't earn it. We can't work for it. We don't deserve it. We don't do anything to force God to give it to us. He must give it as a token of his infinite grace. And by the way, if you're wondering about that verse 15, so whoever believes... In him has eternal life. It's almost as if he's saying he has eternal life already. And if you think that's a bit of a stretch, look at verse 18. Look at the other side, the, the, counter, the counterbalance here. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already. Now, we don't have time to look at that, but imagine you're Nicodemus. And what does Jesus just tell him? You, right now, are living under God's judgment. How does that turn around? God has to be merciful. And you may be saying, but I want this salvation. How can I get it? If you really want the salvation that God offers you, then maybe you should thank him for it because you probably already have it. And your security from this moment forward will never be, did I believe enough? Was I faithful enough? Did I promise enough? Was I sincere enough? It will be rather, God, you did this. And because you did it, I didn't do anything to get it. I can't do anything to lose it. Praise you. Praise you. Now, some of you are thinking theologically again, and you're going to think, okay, where does the gospel fit into this? And i got some other questions too. Understand that. Jesus isn't trying to answer all those questions here. Paul does. And like I said, maybe we can spend a Sunday trying to pull all of that together. But here's what, here's what John is wanting us to see, what Jesus wanted us to see is this. If you are a child of God, you are a child of God because of God and not because of yourself. And for that, he gets all the glory. And, oh, Father, that's where we want the glory to go. Not to us, not unto us, oh, Lord, but to you alone be the glory. For you are God, and there is no other. And we are like Israel in the wilderness, We deserve the serpents, we deserve your wrath, and yet you have lifted up for us on a standard our salvation in the person of Jesus Christ. Praise you. May we, Father, come away today responding to these things appropriately in a way that gives you great glory. May we worship you because of these things. And may we, as we come to the Lord's table, be humbled before the elements as we remember what you did in Christ to save us. These things we pray by the authority of Jesus' name.